The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. Your host today is Reinhard Schumacher, and my guest for this episode is Till Dippe. Till is a historian of economics, and he is an associate professor at the Department of Economic Science at the University du Québec à Montréal in Canada. In 2017, Till has received the Young Scholar Researcher Award from the European Society for the History of Economic Thought, which recognizes scholarly achievements of historians of economic thought below the age of 40. Lately, he has focused his research on the history of economics in the German Democratic Republic, GDR, maybe better known as East Germany, a state that existed from 1949 to 1990. And this will be the main topic of our discussion today. Welcome to Ceteris Never Paribus, Till. Yeah, hi, Reinhard. Thanks for having me. Before we dig into the topic, let's start with your general approach toward the history of economic thought. On your homepage, you describe your research area as the historical epistemology of economics, inspired by phenomenological philosophy. Can you briefly explain your approach and its characteristics and maybe also differences from other approaches um, in the history of economics? Yeah, that's a kind of awkward question, but um, uh, let's take it um, word by word. So, um, uh, so my work is on epistemology, which um, I understand as a specific regime of knowledge that has some um, uh, specific standards. For example, um, uh, no, mathematical economics at the Cowles Commission or um, uh, dialectical materialism in, in, in political economy in East Berlin or in East Germany. So these are um, uh, regimes of knowledge with spe spe specific standards. And um, uh, well, yeah, it's not that I believe that they are important, more important than ideas, these standards, but I think that's what um, uh, makes economists commit to their um, uh, discipline. So um, I'm dealing with epistemology in a historical way. That is, um, uh, I don't treat these standards of knowledge as cases of more general categories or more general cases, as in the philosophy of economics. Perhaps you know these discussions about causation in macroeconomics, um, uh, whether or not it's a part of a more general kind of causation. But I treat it in response to um, a specific historical situation. And in particular, um, I'm dealing with the Cold War. I think that um, uh, historical situations, they impose themselves on science. And science and economics are, to a large extent, responses to these um, uh, historical situations. You might um, uh, try to um, uh, escape from it, but still also this escape um, um, uh, is a response. So now I'm not dealing with these um, uh, historical situations as like structures of institutions, technologies, um, uh, as um, um, uh, power relations, as some people um, uh, might want to do, that are uh, inspired more by a Foucaultian way of doing historical epistemology. But I treat knowledge as experience. That is, knowledge is not representation, but knowledge is experience, which is a matter of the kind of personality um, uh, that is required. For example, Bobak's rigor matches well with the intro introverted personality um, um, uh, of Gerard de Breu, or also a kind of morality. For example, I have shown that um, uh, 
macroeconometrics matches well with the Prussian discipline or also, also like a more order obsessive personality. So it's also the kind of psychological needs that um, are required to um, commit to a certain regime of knowledge. People who don't know phenomenology very well, they are sometimes reminded of a psychological account of um, economists and scientists when, uh, when reading my work. But of course, in phenomenology, that would be a taboo, but I'm totally fine with that ca characterization. Well, yeah, and um, uh, I'm doing that in terms of biographies. So um, uh, it's mostly life writing, asking the question, what kind of um, a specific person do you have to be in order to be attracted by um, uh, economics of that period? And also, what does economics do to your person if you commit to that um, uh, regime of knowledge? All of that sounds rather abstract, but I think it's really important to understand, in particular, our grandparents' generation. Those who experienced World War II and then, after the war, put all their professional hopes into science and in economics in particular and building up like um, a, a better society that is um, uh, better than um, uh, what was experienced in the first half of the um, uh, 20th century. In this generation, there's, there's so much unspoken, so much silence, so much um, uh, lack of um, um, uh, means of expressing uh, what happened to that generation. And there are also so many misunderstandings. We, 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 we used to think about them as perpetrators or victims. And that's all what popular memory somehow offers. And, well, there's just more to it. And if you want to, if you want to understand their commitment to economics, um, uh, we have to think about um, uh, these um, uh, very specific dense experiences. This sounds uh, very interesting. And we will discuss how you did this with economics in the GDR. But let's start with your motivation of this topic. Economics in the GDR is not an, or has not received much attention. So what was your motivation for this project and why did you start looking into the development of economics in the GDR? Yeah, the way that happened was um, um, 10 years ago when I worked at Humboldt University for um, uh, two years or so, they asked me to write the history of the faculty. And um, uh, it's a history of 200 years, in fact. Then I got in touch with the economists that worked there during the GDR, and I found that very fascinating. They were still very attached to the faculty, to the to the building also. They were very proud of what they achieved. Uh, they were mostly happy to share it, um, uh, but there was also lots of anger and sadness, and um, uh, they felt totally misunderstood, mistreated um, uh, by the current faculty. So, um, uh, and also very unknown by the current faculty. So I wanted to understand what was going on and um, uh, what happened. And then a more practical reason was when I went to um, uh, Canada, I uh, wanted to stay in touch with um, my home and I wanted to have um, uh, my research based in Germany. And um, uh, I continued working on, on Berlin and um, GDR economists. What I also found very attractive was like working with um, uh, Stasi, uh, the secret police files, which I found like um, uh, might be a great source for writing like rich personal accounts for um, uh, for economic knowledge in the in the GDR, which is like um, uh, a source um, uh, really unknown in 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 the Western context. Well, and after all, I also found it like um, uh, fun um, uh, research because it's recent past but still so very different from, from what we know today. There are so many 
misunderstanding is also about um, GDR people, in particular those who strongly be believed in it. No? So how was it possible to like fully commit to this um, um, uh, socialist experiment? And um, what kind of problems did they have and what did they enjoy? And, um, uh, and yeah, that's what I wanted to understand. And I have to add, when when reading your work on it, it it seems that your enthusiasm you can you can see it in the articles. And as you said, I just want to add this because it might come a bit uh, short in the rest of the interview. You did a lot of archival uh, work, and you interviewed people who were involved in economics in the GDR, and also family members of people of of professors who might have died by now. And You've published several articles on various episodes and institutions by now and you're preparing more and we will put up links to all of them on our homepage. And I will mention the articles um, when we discuss them. But let me first give some general background on the development of economics in Germany in the 20th century because this might not be true, well known to listeners of our podcast. Many might only be familiar with the German Historical School of Economics, which was prominent in the second half of the 19th century, early 20th century. And it was quite influential internationally, but in the early 20th century, it started to wane. And after the First World War and the end of the German Empire and the German monarchy, the historical school lost a lot of influence and supporters. It uh, lingered on. But in the following Weimar Republic, which was established in 1918, and existed for 15 years, there was no dominant school of economics in Germany. There was rather a kind of pluralism, and we might get into that later. Then in 1933, Hitler became chancellor and turned Germany into a national socialist state. This led to the flight and expulsion of many academics, including economists, especially those of Jewish origin. And economists had to be loyal to the new nation, national socialist regime. Um, this led, of course, to sudden changes in the economics profession and economics turned to or had to become a German economics, as it was called. But, of course, the regime didn't last too long, so there was not much time to consolidate. And after the Second World War, Germany was eventually divided into two states. The Federal Republic of Germany or West Germany became a liberal democratic parliamentarism aligned to the Western powers, order liberalism was dominant and also neoclassical economists. We will not discuss this, but we focus on the other state, the GDR or East Germany, which became a so-called socialist workers and peasant state aligned to the Soviet Union. So Marxist-Leninism was the dominant school of thought. And it also led to another abrupt change in the economics profession And um, the same, of course, is true for the West, but in the East, the change was from National Socialism to Marxist-Leninism. So this is just a brief historical sketch. And then the GDR was established, and the so-called denazification took place, but also Sovietization. So, Till, can you briefly describe the transition from German economics under National Socialism to economics in the newly created socialist GDR. How did the Soviets get rid of the Nazi economists and where did they find or how did they find new socialist economists? Who were these people? Where did they come from? Yeah, sure. That's um, uh, That was quite um, a longer story. In fact, um, it, it, it took quite a while to, to get this new um, uh, socialist intellectual culture um, uh, established and settled. Um, uh, 
um, uh, perhaps even until the, the, the building of the wall in the early 1960s. It all started with a, with a law of denazification, right, which um, uh, was a law um, uh, from the Allied forces. So it's the same law was applied in the East and in the West, and it basically said that those who um, uh, were members of the NSDAP, which means the, um, uh, the, the National Socialist Party, they had to, um, uh, yeah, they had to leave. They could not um, uh, go on working um, uh, in the university. And um, uh, the GDR was quite rigorous, and uh, in economics, um, uh, only a few um, uh, survived. Um, uh, roughly 80% um, uh, did not continue working at, um, uh, as economists at the university. I know it's um, it's a kind of GDR cliche um, uh, from for them no? that um, uh, they were more radical and um, uh, and that in the West um, uh, Nazis could go on living in in, in the universities. But um, uh, from my point of view in economic science, that's in that's true to a large extent. Actually, I do not know of um, um, uh, any economist in the GDR who had a former past in the NSDAP. Um, uh, if you look, for example, um, uh, at the careers of the so-called Beckerrat Circle in, in West Germany, um, uh, I would say that they, uh, many of them would not have had a career in the East. And, and that was not because of their liberal views, of course. But after this cut um, uh, in 47 or 48, what was left were the old bourgeois economists, the, um, uh, the traditional ordinarios no, who, who has survived Nazism without membership in the NSDAP party. Felix Burkhardt, for example, was a statistician, um, uh, was one of them. There were um, uh, strong student protests against them, and, and some of them left, um, um, uh, some of them survived for the beginning. But um, uh, since so many economists left, or scientists in general left, um, uh, and there was a great demand for professors. Yeah? And in the first period, they also had to accept um, uh, social democrats. Yeah? When the GDR was founded then in 49, and only then the actual Marxist-Leninist basis of university was imposed. Also, they, they left um, uh, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes less voluntarily. Well, uh, the students, also think of the students at the time. They, they witnessed this um, come and go of uni university teachers, and they were very politicized. Those who were in favor of Marxism-Leninism, they protested against um, social democrats and, and, and these bourgeois economists. Um, uh, some also protested against Marxism-Leninism. They got arrested, and that, that, that led to the foundation of the Free University in, in the West um, um, part of Berlin. What was left then in the early 50s, after the um, GDR was founded, were two kinds of socialist professors. Those coming from, from the Western exile. Uh, an example is, for example, Kuczynski, and those coming back from the Soviet exile, an example is um, uh, Robert Naumann. These were really two different styles of intellectuals. The one was like the typical left-wing intellectual, big rhetoric, humanistic education, historically minded, etc. And the other was more like a Stalinist type of rule-based, order-obsessive, submissive, and less inspirational kind of um, uh, intellectual. And and what later happened in the um, uh, in the GDR can be seen as an as a conflict between these two types of um, uh, of economists. And so basically, all the professors came from exile, right? Basically, um, uh, the most. 
and uh, those who have um, survived as social democrats in some way nazism but the biggest source were people coming back from exile okay and then um, of course as you you alluded to it there might have been some conflicts and it was it was unclear in the beginnings at least what marxist leninism meant in every detail um, although under the in the early years stalin's rule also had a great influence um, on the GDR, but maybe we can focus on an episode um, that you call a show debate that took place in the late 1950s, so still early early on in the GDR. Stalin had died in, I think, 53, and then Khrushchev came to power, and there was a so-called saw and the de-Stalinization, uh, de when repression in the Soviet Union was relaxed, and this had all kinds of um, influences on the other Soviet states. Think of Prague Spring, for example. And in the GDR, in, within economics, there was a debate on revisionism taking place. I'm not sure if all listeners are familiar with the term of revisionism within Marxism. Um, it basically refers to an accusation of watering down or making a significant revision to fundamental Marxist premises. So it's basically an accusation that someone is untrue to Marx. And this accusation has a quite long history within Marxism, reaching back to the late uh, 19th century, not too long after Marx's death. So, and it is usually used to discredit a position or to vilify a person. And in the late 1950s, a debate on revisionism took place in the GDR. And you deal with this debate in an article that is currently in the process of publication. It is accepted at the Contemporary Hist European History, the, that's the name of the journal, and the title is a Science Show Debate, How the Stasi Staged Revisionism. Can you tell us briefly what this debate was about and its significance for economics in the GDR? Yeah, that was um, uh, great fun working on that article, um, uh, even though it took a while. So um, uh, what I just um, uh, said, this confrontation of um, uh, the Stalinist type of intellectual and the more um, uh, Western, um, uh, broadly minded um, uh, Marxist, that is what took place after um, Stalin died in 53, during the so-called fall, which you um, uh, mentioned. So there are many people um, uh, in the Academy of Science that now hoped for like more democracy, a less centralized economy, a more open intellectual culture and and more influence of the Academy of Science um, uh, on, on politics in general. And that was um, uh, that was a belief really like deeply grounded in Marxism. Think of it like uh, for a Marxist um, uh, in capitalism, science belongs to the superstructure and is nothing but ideology. And once um, um, uh, no, the working class took over in socialism, only then science can become a real productive force. Only then it can become really um, um, uh, um, uh, socially relevant to the building up of um, uh, the socialist society. That is, um, uh, in fact, the party and um, uh, the Academy of Science, of course, uh, they were all in favor of um, uh, a new um, uh, scientific culture that is um, uh, different from bourgeois economics and that is also um, uh, yeah, uh, different from what what was science during Stalin, uh, so, so the um, uh, people at the beginning of the GDR thought. And, um, uh, well, I describe the changes that took place in, in the economics department of the Academy of Science, in particular Friedrich Behrens, who was 
one of the um, uh, leading or most known um, uh, Marxists um, uh, and and early Communist Party members who wrote a book in 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 56 um, uh, about the diminishing role of the state in socialism. Perhaps you know that um, uh, Marx argued that the more and more we advance in socialism and in, in finally in communism, the state becomes um, uh, yeah, uh, less and less necessary. So after all, the state, um, as, every, as every other futile part of the superstructure, will, um, uh, will become um, unnecessary and will disappear. And so argued Behrens um, uh, for also more workers' involvement now, for more decentralization, and he was much inspired by what was going on in Yugoslavia. But then uh, after the Hungarian uprising, so um, uh, really like um, uh, reformist um, forces uh, introduced um, uh, for some time at least uh, a more democratic socialist um, uh, regime, Ulrich, who was the first secretary in the GDR, he was afraid that the same would happen in the GDR and um, uh, that his own um, uh, government or regime would be um, uh, taken, yeah, thrown down. Uh, and he decided then not to publish the book because it might cause forces against his own regime. But this in the academies, Academy of Science would be considered censorship. Hmm? Which, was, which would mean that the party would lose touch with the academia as a source of its legitimacy, and that was not possible. So um, um, Ulrich decided that there would be um, um, a scientific debate at the Institute on the book that should result, of course, in the consensus that Behrens' ideas are revisionist, and um, uh, that should be published um, um, to the entire community of economists and um, uh, the GDR public, so that everybody knows that these ideas are wrong. And then, well, just like the show trials under Stalin, if you look at the um, uh, archives of the Stasi, you can show that this was actually a show debate. The Stasi helped organizing these weekly debates in the economics department that would later become public. They managed like with very subtle force that at, at the end, everyone agree agreed that Behrens' book was um, a revisionist. And also that his methods were unscientific. Unscientific in what sense? Because it's too theoretical. No? Real science in socialism is that which helps the current needs of the party to build up socialist society. No? That was um, uh, the, the most important result of the debate. Not only that these ideas of decentralization are called um, um, un-Marxist, but also that um, uh, the way it was proposed is um, uh, not scientific because it is too far away from the actual needs of the um, uh, Socialist Party. So actually the needs of the Socialist Party and the claim to science, to scientificity, um, uh, was the same, and that was the um, uh, the important result and and the big trauma for economics in the GDR in the following because it was the beginning of kind of self censorship of um, uh, visionary ideas and um, uh, and also like the beginning of this this big um, uh, important epistemic virtue of practical relevance, which was actually a conservative. Um, virtue which um, um, reinforced the status quo of the party. Uh, yeah, that, that conclusion I found interesting. If you think back to this historical epistemology, there you see that you have an, an, an epistemic virtue 
practical relevance, no? which um, really reflects, um, uh, which has meaning due to its um, um, uh, historical context. In our context, in the Western context, practical relevance is an argument by heterodox economists, right? And, and is used in a very different, for very different purposes. And such a case can help you reflect about, um, uh, yeah, perhaps um, uh, better articulating your, um, uh, your goal, no? seeing that in other contexts, practical relevance can, can, can be used in a very conservative way. One might also add, because it's kind of funny, when if you in Marx, it is, as you said, the state will be withering away. Um, there is no state in communism, basically. But um, And they were supposed to be Marxist-Leninist uh, economists. But in case Marx, or some parts of Marx, would contradict the, the official party line, they would go probably rather with a party line than defend Marx. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, in the book that Behrens wrote later uh, and was published after um, 89 by his daughter, he argues that the state developed as a class on its own. So there's the bureaucratic class. He was actually not the only one also in the Soviet Union. There were political economists who argued that um, uh, the socialist experiment could be described as like a like an early state of socialism in which the state has not yet, um, in which the state is takes over the class interests of the bourgeois class and um, um, does not really act in favor of the working class. Uh, we had on our podcast some time ago Adam Leeds talking on Soviet economics. There seem to be similar concerns or similar dilemmas facing economists. Yeah. One one more question about these economists that um, involved in the show debate were part of the Academy of Science. How was economics organized in the GDR? Germany has a tradition of research universities. The Soviet Union apparently had no research universities. Universities were mostly for teaching and research took place at some academies of sciences. Was it the same in the GDR? Was the Academy of Sciences where research took place or was research also taking place at universities? Um, yeah, so there was a decision in, in the late um, 60s, um, a reform. There were actually many reforms of, um, uh, of university and, and, and the Academy of Science that in fact um, research largely takes place in the Academy of Science and teaching in the universities. So that was not fully carried out, but um, in fact there was this um, separation of teaching and research. But, well, if you think um, uh, of like the basic situation of economists in the GDR, um, uh, they did feel important and they had a um, uh, high social esteem and um, they, they felt in charge of the education of the official ideology. And uh, they also held um, often important social functions in the party. And, and they also believed, in fact, um, uh, many of them to be um, uh, like a productive force and contribute to the building up of, um, of socialism. But in fact, their, their research acti activities compared to us today, they were um, uh, really limited. As I said, so at the universities, um, uh, their main task was, in fact, teaching and that was their main ac activity. If there was um, a research, it was planned, in particular after that um, reform in the 60s I mentioned. Research in economics was part of the five years plan. And um, it was usually also contracted with the so-called um, praxis partners, that is the, um, the ministries, or also the companies, the so-called 
Kombinate. And um, uh, in, in these circumstances, of course, um, uh, publication in Western journals was absolutely, it was virtually impossible. But what is important to understand is that at every moment, they felt um, uh, in charge of proposing um, uh, suggestions to improve the, um, uh, the situation of, yeah, in, in, in finance or in, in, in teaching or in, um, uh, in planning, etc. And um, uh, from party congress to party congress, they, they, they tried to improve, actually, the, the project of the um, uh, GDR. They were like in a continuous state of reforming themselves, um, uh, which made them believe in their possible practical relevance, in their democratic involvement, in their importance, and also their 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 gratitude they have to the party to 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 um, be offered that um, opportunity. But of course, the reality was the the more reforms, the greater the bureaucratic apparatus um, uh, became which um, uh, neutralized every reform effort which came from below. The, the actual decisions, they were made um, uh, by the Politburo in the forest, somewhere close to, to, to Bernau. I don't know if you ever went there. Did you, did you ever go there? I didn't go there yet, no. It's, uh, it's like uh, they are closed off in, in, in a forest, um, uh, very quiet, and um, uh, that's where the Politburo... Um, uh, no? These um, uh, dozen of people met, and that's where the decision took place. After all, well, the, um, uh, that created, of course, frustration, and this frustration was secretly known, and um, uh, it somehow led into a sort of turn inward into your own collective, where you where you somehow feel responsible for a small task. Um, uh, of um, uh, yeah, at Humboldt University, it was the teaching of the students, and there was very little open public debate. That's that's the big difference, I guess, to to economics um, uh, today. However, there was still um, uh, some kind of um, uh, uh, exceptional intellectuals, such as, for example, Behrens or um, Kuczynski, but also like um, uh, Dieter Klein or Harry Meyer was. They were they were like the stars of GDR economics, and they they also created this this hope that in fact economics matters. So. Um, uh, they were somehow important, exceptions were important to create this um, idea of um, economics being important. But this was probably also promoted by um, the official party stance towards economics, right? Because in, in Marxism, economics is supposedly a very important um, science. So they, as I think you, you somewhere called it, that economics was seen as the first among the sciences yes yeah, yeah so so they also they the party gave them this kind of self-image of being very important um but did the the economists play a big role in setting up the um economic system in the gdr and now i'm reminded again a little bit of my talk with adam Leeds in the soviet union they said well the economists did a lot to build up the central planning system but when they started putting forward ideas of reforming it and when the power was already consolidated, this went against the party line. So they were either imprisoned or, or executed, which did not happen in the GDR as far as I know. But did they play any role in, in setting up the whole system and were they then very cautious? Maybe also because they saw what happened in the Soviet Union to the economists when, when proposing reforms? Yeah. I would answer a little differently from 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 Adam Leeds. Um, uh, what, what what is important for the GDR, what I understood from the GDR, is what I just called this turn inward. Yeah, 
um, and they turn inward, um, uh, yeah, uh, corresponded with um, um, uh, institutional intransparency of the economics profession. So they were like, um, you have to you have to imagine there uh, there is like economic research at the party institutions. The party had its own academy academy of science. The um, uh, well, okay, the academy of science for the social sciences. The, there was the party school. Um, uh, that also had the status of a kind of university and um, uh, um, uh, trained its own economists. Then there were all universities. Then there was the normal Academy of Science. And um, uh, the idea was that everybody had its own task. No? And if, you, if there's this, this institutional intransparency of, um, uh, of so many sources of, um, uh, of economic knowledge, that all officially like um, uh, divide uh, their labor in, a, in an efficient way, you you just believe that somebody else will somehow integrate the knowledge that you contribute without um, uh, ever having actual control over it. So the question of uh, the, the on the one hand, the policy apparatus, on the other hand, the economists, and whether or not the economists had influence of them uh, on the policy apparatus, that's that's um, uh, that's not the right question. That was it was just so messed up in this institutional um, uh, size of of the bureaucracy that um, uh, yeah, at the end, um, as I said, I would say it's the Politburo in the forest close to Bernau that decided, and the rest um, uh, was was just turning in vain. Yes, and this led to tension, as you call it in your in your writings, between loyalty to the state or to the party on the one side, and on the other side, one could say loyalty to to science or to a more professional oriented uh, scientific approach, which was not necessarily possible because of the self censorship. So this tension must have been rather hard to deal with for some, right? If you have this ideal of a Now you have you got rid of the bourgeois state. Now you have a socialist utopian dream that might be fulfilled, but then you you're faced with all kinds of other political um, restraints. This must have been hard for some, I guess, since they believed in this um, socialist utopia, right? They actually thought this they would building something better. They would free the people living in the state. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very basic tension that can be simply put. Economics had two functions, an ideological function and, um, uh, and a practical function. So on the one hand, it was there to reproduce the um, uh, belief in the Marxist-Leninist basis. On the other hand, it was also a source of product. Um, it was also productive force. And um, of course, according to Marx or in the Marxist idea, these things, they go hand in hand. So. Um, the more you are Marxist, the more you understand the truth, the more productive you can be. However, um, uh, Marxist ideas, they come from the 19th century and they did not really tell how to run a socialist state. So um, uh, actually it, um, uh, it, it hindered, or I'd like it um, um, came in conflict with this idea of being productive force. And that tension between, um, uh, on the one hand, um, um, uh, sticking to um, uh, Marx ideas and um, uh, on the other hand, um, uh, not knowing how to 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 get it done, no? and not accepting ideas like decentralization, and not accepting ideas as um, uh, as whatever profit or so, no? that makes this tension increase and increase. Let's turn 
to an article you wrote on what you call the generation of GDR economists. You did an in-depth study of economists at the Humboldt University of Berlin, where you have been yourself for two years, as you, as you told us. And the economics department, and you've alluded to it, at the Humboldt University has a rather renowned history, going back nearly 200 years. And in your study, you use Karl Mannheim's concept of generations, which as the name says, takes generations as the unit of analysis and you do this to analyze and describe the generation of GDR economists. And let me add, this was a paper published in 2017 in the History of Human Sciences and the title is The Generation of the GDR Economists at the Humboldt University of Berlin, Caught Between Loyalty and Relevance. Can you briefly explain your approach here and what the a generation of GDR economists is, what you mean by that? So Karl Mannheim, uh, he was one of the very early scholars in, in, in sociology who did like um, a historical theory of knowledge. And um, uh, instead of um, uh, talking about um, classes or social groups, he, um, uh, he spoke of generations, which is like the, um, uh, the historicized notion of classes, that which gives, gives meaning to um, uh, uh, yeah, to historical events is um, uh, like the specific age group that um, uh, experiences the, these events. Now, um, if you think now, for example, of about um, um, uh, what's going on at the moment, now and um, uh, how your little son experiences um, uh, that event, now for uh, for him, it, it's mainly about empty park so of course i'm talking about corona St staying at home instead of going to kindergarten <laughs> yeah exactly um, uh, for you it means something very different uh, dealing with um, uh, no, not access to libraries or so um, uh, others they are unemployed and um, old people who are retired um, uh, they have different um, fears and anxieties now so it's the same event but um, uh, very different ways of experiences experiencing it. And of course, the same applies to World War II, to the end of the war, to the foundation of the GDR, to the building of the wall and to the fall of the wall, yeah, obviously. And the, what I call the generation of the GDR was, um, uh, was the only generation that lived its entire professional life in the GDR that never had to adapt to another regime. No? So there were other um, communists who were active in, in the beginning, but they also had to live um, uh, no, in, during Nazism or um, uh, in other contexts. So, so this one generation that um, uh, was really like the homegrown generation of the GDR. And it's that generation that was born in the um, early 1930s. If you think of them, they were too young to go to the war. They they might have lost um, uh, their father. They grew up in the Hitler Youth, but um, uh, then in very young age, they witnessed the poverty after the war. Um, uh, they were the first cohort of um, uh, university students um, uh, taught under Marxism and Leninism. Uh, they witnessed these ideological battles at the beginning that I that I spoke about. Um, uh, they were also grateful for the chance to go to um, university because it was for free and um, it was not always for free before. And they also immediately got jobs after their PhDs because there was a great demand for Marxist teachers. In the 1960s, after the building of the wall, they, they all became professors and also um, uh, kept on these jobs and blocked other generations later, younger people, 
to um, uh, become professors because it was really like, uh, yeah, if you look at um, the professors in, in, in the 1980s active in, at the Humboldt University, they, uh, they all were born in these early 30s. And that was actually the reason why I came to, um, uh, to write this article. Um, and when they were roughly at retirement age, uh, um, the, fall, the wall came down and um, uh, yeah, they, uh, they never had to confront the regime after and could continue going on believing that um, uh, socialism will come back. So understanding the GDR is to understand how these people think. Uh, understanding like the, the this very idiosyncratic values of the uh, of the of the GDR intellectuals is to understand these people. That was the um, approach to that article. And and that is something maybe that you said before when you when you described your general approach that people are not should not always be seen either as victims or as perpetrators. Um, this is a generation they they experienced the war in their young ages. Then the GDR came. Their poverty ended, at least the poverty they knew. And then they got a career. They were very grateful to the GDR, which I think what you is kind of why you explain why they were loyal also to the regime and why they yeah. kind of self-centered because they they actually were very kind of grateful to the to to the yeah. state and this is um, and then they were drawn into this conflict between loyalty and relevance and i mean it's very interesting to yeah. to read it like this and to have this concept of a generation and tend to see what the generation went through and how you can explain it it's not of course not a justification but it's it's an explanation and you understand that these are humans and why they yeah. acted like this so i found this a very interesting article and i can only recommend it and also i never um seen this concept by Karl Mannheim of generations applied somewhere in history of economics. I might be, I, I haven't read everything, of course, but this was the first time I saw it and I found this very interesting. Thank you. So let's, let's talk a bit more about this generation, but let's maybe discuss how they interacted with the rest of the world. Were there any interactions between GDR economists and economists in West Germany or the, the Western world? Did they meet at international conferences or were there exchanges? As you, you already said that it was hard for GDI economists to publish in Western uh, journals, but um, did some publications took place or did the Western economists, or at least in West Germany, paid attention to what the Eastern economists were doing? Yeah, of course, that was also like one of the questions that I always um, posed when I talked to them. And, um, um, uh, and of course, they were very proud and they would say, oh, yeah, we had lots of interactions. No? But um, uh, if you look at it, what they actually did, and if you compare it, what we do today, they were very closed off. And they, in the GDR, they were even more closed off than any other um, socialist countries. So, like, if you think of history of economics, now we um, also this podcast is somehow um, uh, set up in a way that that it really doesn't matter much now if you are in Brazil or in the US or in Europe or in Asia. Now we um, uh, we are somehow in the same in the same boat. No? Um, even though that's not true, but um, um, that was so totally not true in the um, uh, in the GDR. It might be that they were um, reading Samuelson, okay, but the only thing they did with it is to critique it no, as a capitalist um, uh, apology. And well, I know in the Soviet Union, like two or three people who read the Breu or um, um, Usava, if you want, but uh, I don't know anyone in the in the GDR who did that. 
Weil der did my input output, of course. That's verflechtungsanalyse. That's what they called it. They had, um, uh, they were allowed to have contacts with socialist countries, but on the other hand, there were less, um, uh, there were not a lot of occasions to actually go there because conferences, um, uh, yeah, there were some conferences, but not as regularly as we know today, like for example, the the the, the Ashet conference. Now that didn't, didn't exist really um, at the time. It was mostly national what they what they what they had in terms of conferences. Uh, some selected people, the so-called um, Reisekada, they um, uh, they could go to Western conferences or to Western research days, um, but they were exactly told what they can say and they were ex told what they can cannot say and what they do and what's the task. Um, um, and yeah, if you talk to witnesses um, who had contact with GDR people in the West, um, they were very insecure. Often there were also language barriers actually. But um, uh, there was one uh, systematic interaction between the, the West and the East, uh, which is uh, the last and uh, a new paper I'm working on on the GDR at the moment, which is on um, IASA in Luxembourg, the um, International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis close to Vienna, which was founded by um, uh, people like Danze, Kupmans, um, um, Reifa, and um, uh, which was really like, like um, a big hope for um, uh, communication between the East and the West. Um, uh, there were um, uh, countries in from the East and the West, both um, uh, equally represented. And on eye level, they were supposed to work on things like climate, transport, and, and other policy decision modeling kind of things. Well, and I'm currently working on, on, on one person who was there, the, the most known or successful um, uh, person at Yasa. He's called um, uh, Harry Meyer. And I try to understand what's, what was their experience, no? because um, uh, they faced a big clash of um, um, uh, yeah, intellectual cultures. On the one hand, we have um, uh, individual research initiative at Yasa, very informal team cooperation, private funding, we have like flat hierarchies and also like the freedom to do theory no? and in a speculative way, which is not immediately um, relevant to any policy purpose. Hmm? Uh, on the other hand, no, there was planned research, research, which was rather rigid, very formal hierarchies, um, uh, ideological limits and um, uh, and also this, this strong commitment that everything you do has to be immediately applied and useful for um, uh, whatever purpose. No? And also, like uh, if you read like the Stasi files, um, uh, what is interesting, they always have to start from this hypothesis that everything they do is actually part of the struggle of the um, uh, of the of the cl of classes. Is part of the class conflict. So if you start from that hypothesis, how, how, how is it possible that you develop a cooperative spirit at IASA? And, and, and in fact, if you do it, as many did, you get in conflict with the regime. And this led also to the, uh, to the decision for Harry Meyer to, to leave the GDR, to stay in Vienna and to start a new career in, in West Germany, which on the other hand was impossible because um, uh, you can't have a career in a Western university as a, as a Marxist from the GDR. And which period of time was this Yasa Institute? That was the um, 80s. Okay, 80s so, so very late on. Yeah. That's, but that's interesting. I, I didn't know about that. 
Um, and, and maybe the, the, the GDR must have been more uh, compatible with Soviet economics. How, how much influence did Soviet economics have on economics in the GDR? I don't know if you know anything about it, but was the GDR economists basically echoing Soviet economists or did they um, develop their own, one could say, unique style of Marxist-Leninist um, economics? Now, I would say Soviet economics was more open to the West than uh, than GDR economics. So, uh, if you think for uh, for example, input output, input output was first translated. So the books, uh, the the textbooks, they were translated into 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 Russian, and then they were translated from Russian to German for the GDR economists. So it was all filtered via the Soviet Union. Everything which came fr uh, from the West was filtered through what was accepted in the Soviet Union. And um, uh, yeah, the GDR was just um, uh, had this special role among the socialist countries that it has to be um, uh, exemplary for all the socialist states in representing socialist values. Mm -hmm. And it was also much smaller, like um, the Soviet Union, not ever um, uh, They had more freedom, actually, in receiving ideas from the West than, than in the GDR. Let's move on to um, the end of the GDR. In November 1989, as many will know, the Berlin Wall fell. And in October 1990, the GDR ceased to exist. And Germany was reunified, although it was probably rather an absorption by the West and a reunification on equal terms. What happened to the economists in the GDR. Can you describe the break um, that took place? As I just said, the, um, uh, these two cultures, they were so different that it really came to a clash, but um, uh, that did not come uh, immediately. When the wall came down, all economists were happy. Finally, the state is ready for a truly democratic reform, no? as they always wanted. In the, in the fall of the wall, they saw like their dream realized. They were proud of their state, that without violence, they are, they are, they are willing to, um, uh, to, um, uh, to go for more democratic reforms for finally a democratic socialism, which, is, which overcomes the Stalinist baggage. Huh? And I might, I might just add, at this point, it was not clear that the, uh, the reunification will take place. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Because um, uh, the younger generation, no, which was seduced from the the sirens of Western politicians, no, they they did not think of Stalinism. They never experienced Stalinism, and they they wanted more. No, so there's this misunderstanding between between them, uh, these two generations. So reunification one year later was the big drama for these economists because they knew that was the end of their life dream. And from one day to the other, they, they were moved from a social elite to a useless, um, uh, like what preachers of a, of a, of a dead regime. No? Well, on top of it, there was like in Berlin, at least a decision that uh, some disciplines are basically closed down. So they, 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 they decided that philosophy, law, history and economics. So these um, uh, disciplines, they all have to close down and have to re be rebuilt. All the others, they could go through, even though, no, which was a weird decision, mathematicians, for example, they were much more socialist and closer to the socialist party than, than, than history of ec or economics. So anyway, they all lost their jobs and then could apply to their own jo jobs 
in competition with common economies from the West, however, decided by a committee, committee which is from the West. So from one year to the other, all was neoclassical. There was only one professor who has survived from uh, economic history, and there was another one who also survived because he changed, um, he moved to political science. For many, that was like a, a real human drama, in particular for the younger generation that was in the midst of their um, uh, professional careers. Some went to court, and there's also um, uh, the record of one case of suicide. For the generation I was talking about, it was all that not that bad because they, they could go into retirement. And they kept on also believing in socialism, as I already mentioned. Everything that followed after, like uh, all this wave of unemployment, all the wars also that took place, um, uh, the, the economic crisis, uh, ups and downs, they could all interpret that as a confirmation of their beliefs. In some way, if you think of them, they are, they are still living in the GDR, in fact. And and the people, who, the GDR generation you describe, the people who are still alive, how you talk to some of them, right? So how were they mostly disappointed? Do they live in the past? Were they happy to talk to you about it? Was it easy to approach them or were they rather reluctant to, to talk to you? What was your experience? Yeah, well, uh, once you got one, you got all of them because they were still all very connected. They still experienced themselves as like a... Uh, like a collective, yeah? like a community. Once um, uh, somebody talked to me and was kind of um, okay with it, um, uh, the others were also happy to talk to me. And um, uh, well, yeah, no, they were um, uh, they were very friendly people and um, uh, very content and also proud of what they did. Um, uh, perhaps, yeah, of course, also frustrated with um, um, how it ended up, but um, uh, they also understood why it ended up. It's not that they were blind to it, but they knew um, uh, there will be the chance to do it better. At the, at the end of the um, this interview, I want actually to turn to another article you wrote about economics at the Humboldt University in Berlin. And this has been published in Studies in History and Philosophy of Science. And the title is Border Cases Between autonomy and relevance economic science in berlin a natural experiment and in this article you do not only deal with gdr economics but um, with also with what came before and after so you use institutional history to analyze and compare what you call three radical ruptures so the first rupture is the takeover of national socialism and um, the second one is the founding of the gdr And the third rupture is the introduction of Western neoclassical economists after the end of the GDR. And you draw four conclusions from this um, institutional history. And if it were okay with you, I would briefly like to go through all four of them because they are rather interesting. Um, so let's start with your first conclusion. And I, I hope that you can um, explain it a bit. And your first um, conclusion is, and now I quote your article, in all political regimes, one can observe a certain tension between autonomy and the relevance of economic knowledge. I mean, we have discussed this for the GDR in some detail, but it was also true for the National Socialism. And as you argue, and which might be less obvious for, for neoclassical economists that took over, can you explain this a bit? Yeah, I must say these, uh, these four conclusions, they are... Uh, 
they are meant also as provocations, of course, and uh, generalizations that are kind of provocative, but um, um, that only come out if you compare these three um, uh, reforms or these three ruptures of very, very different um, uh, social contexts like Nazism as a totalitarian regime, socialism as an authoritarian regime, and um, today our liberal democracy with um, neoclassical economics. So what, I, what do I mean by like um, autonomy of economic knowledge? I mean that economics can generate its own um, um, questions, no? that not all questions somehow come from um, the um, social or political sphere, um, but um, that, for example, um, um, I don't know what now, like these, um, uh, these, these internal questions of Keynesianism or of um, uh, Keynesianism is not the best example, but of general equilibrium theory. These are really like examples that prove that economic knowledge has, um, um, has autonomy and relevance, of course, is this link to um, um, uh, yeah, these questions that are posed in politics. Uh, Nazism was like very uh, suspicious about any autonomy of of, of knowledge of um, in any discipline, so it was really like politically limited. Um, uh, abstraction was considered um, um, illegitimate and also associated with um, uh, Jewish intellectualism. In socialism, that was different. One one grants some kind of autonomy now because it's also like. Um, uh, um, Marxist intellectualism has like um, um, uh, its own status, which is beyond um, um, politics, like like the eternal truth, so to speak. And uh, so it it grants some autonomy, but still wants to find like the optimal amount of autonomy in order to be really efficient no? for the for the system. And today, we 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 don't impose any limits, so we let we we just let it go economics, and we we simply hope. No? without actually blind, blindly hoping that it will be some kind of relevant, even though this hope is periodically and systematically frustrated. No? After whatever crisis, everybody says, well, but why are you not relevant? Um, or why don't you like um, um, predict it or help us or um, uh, no? whatever? And economists and the one, they, they don't feel always responsible. So you see in all these three regimes, you have this tension. You, you, there's not a real harmony between these two um, um, elements of knowledge, the autonomy and relevance. And um, uh, well, you could ask yourself, what kind of society um, um, brings that together, if not these three societies that we experience in 20th century? Mm -hmm. And let's go to your. Let's continue with your second and also possibly surprising or provocative conclusion. And this is, and here I again quote your article, um, contrary to Robert Merton's old but still widely held thesis in political epistemology, um, that values of science are compatible only with democratic regimes, the totalitarian and authoritarian regimes created better conditions for methodological pluralism in economics than democratic societies. And this means, uh, the quote is over now, and this means, um, as you put it in your article, that there are was more pluralism in forms of economic knowledge um, in both the totalitarian regime of national socialism and the centralist or authoritarian regime of the GDR than there is today. Can you briefly explain this finding and why do you think this is the case? 
So in some way, um, uh, uh, much of these conclusions in, in, in my historical epistemology are somehow directed at this, at this discourse of, the, of heterodox economists criticizing orthodox economists. So that's about um, my pluralism. And, um, uh, and I show that like, yeah, this totalitarian regime of Nazism was actually a good ground for pluralism. Why? Because um, uh, uh, the Nazis said, do German economics. And that created like um, uh, what I call a hermeneutic vacuum. Nobody knows what that could be a German economics. So there are lots of answers to it that generated that are generated by this um, um, uh, imperative. So um, uh, economics during um, um, uh, Nazism was more pluralist than um, uh, than what we know today. The same in the GDR for different reasons. No, in the GDR there was this um, imperative of being um, uh, practically relevant. Therefore, whatever method can help um, uh, that purpose is legitimate. There was the methodological eclecticism in the GDR. They allowed all sorts of um, um, uh, methods. So there was, um, as I already said, like um, uh, formal modeling, but also institutional, descriptive, statistical, everything goes. No? So it was, was more pluralist than what we know today. And today we grant like the most autonomy to, um, um, uh, to economics. And, uh, well, economics is, is, I would say, in fear of losing its identity. And uh, the only way it could um, um, find identity is to stick to one method no? or to uh, one style of reasoning, which is like formal modeling. No? If not, um, uh, they would end up doing, uh, saying the same as um, socialists and political scientists do. Because in terms of um, um, ideas, they, they cannot really find um, uh, um, uh, their own identity anymore. So if you want, the provocation is, A, authoritarian and um, totalitarian regimes are that which keep economics on the ground of reality. If not, um, uh, economics takes off like a balloon no? uh, and has no halt in, um, uh, in the concrete, no? so to speak. But anyway, that's um, um, uh, that's a question um, uh, perhaps the listeners can 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 think about for after the um, uh, the podcast. It's not for me to answer. Well, the only thing I might add, I, the, the national socialism uh, didn't really last long, and then the Second World War started, so there was not much time to consolidate. If it had existed for several decades, there would be a yeah a consolidation and. Uh, an agreement on what German economics is, and then this might have ended all pluralism. Yes. And although I, I I sympathize with your conclusion, I'm not quite sure this um, how how democracy actually plays into this. The why why I mean it is true the economics has a lot of autonomy, and yet you have developed uh, like top journals, and in a methodological sense they are very narrow, and you can also discuss the practical relevance of what is um, done there but the question is how is that linked to democracy itself I don't know just a question that came to my mind now I don't know if you have a I forgot if you have an answer in your article but is this um, I mean you could also think this might not be might not have happened I mean in yeah. a democratic society it could have turned out other but it didn't yeah perhaps, perhaps I, I, I don't make a claim about democracy in that article, but I think more about our image of economic knowledge that the public health holds today. Like um, uh, the idea that um, uh, economic expertise 
is necessary, that it requires lots of uh, MAMA education and that uh, MAMA, we should expect uh, MAMA good answers from them for the questions we have. I think um, in these few sentences, there are lots of misunderstandings. Yeah, that's true. So I recommend people to read the whole article. Um, so let's briefly move on to your third conclusion. And there again, another quotation. You write that we observe a common failure of all regimes to comply with the standard epistemic practice of organized skepticism, which is another concept used by Merton. Can you briefly explain what, what you mean by this? Yeah. So that's like an observation that um, economists in all three regimes were rather um, conformists. And that this causes the question if economics as, I don't know what, as, <laughs> is if economics as such or as a tendency to, to be conformist. Like the, like yeah, when the Nazis arrived, there was so many economists who were ready to come up with an idea of what that means, German economics. Or like, um, even though this transition was very um, difficult, no? at the end, they found people who were um, uh, ready to commit to um, uh, this Marxist-Leninist basis um, uh, for whatever, um, uh, accounting or for, um, uh, for finance. No? Um, uh, and also like um, um, uh, when neoclassical economists arrived, nobody asked, well, well what can we get out of um, uh, the um, uh, experience and the tradition that has been established over 40 years? So because they um, uh, played into the um, uh, political demand of the day. So that's a, also, a, I guess, a basic intuition about economics that it's that that it has a kind of conservative or um, a conformist um, um, tendency. If you compare it to, um, um, uh, let's say, uh, to what you would do to anthropology, to um, um, to um, uh, to philosophy, perhaps. What's the political identity of economics? That's a question that has always often been posed, and um, uh, and this comparison allows it to pose it in a different way. Great. And now your your fourth and, and last conclusion is that there is, as you put it, a shared responsibility of economists in respect at the heart of the negotiation between autonomy and relevance. And we have discussed this in detail with the GDR economists, but you also claim that this tension basically between autonomy and relevance plays out in, in the other um, societies, including our own itself. Can you briefly describe this? Well, but that's perhaps um, uh, more like um, uh, a final remark than, a, than an argument. It just um, uh, says that in all three societies, the fact of economics as a scientific discipline has been accepted. That is economic expertise um, um, existed. It's not that politics replaces the, um, uh, the academic discourse fully, even though Nazism came rather close to it. So, which means that economists do have um, um, a social responsibility um, uh, in all three um, uh, systems. And yeah, that's it. So um, uh, it was simply a reminder at the end of this article that um, uh, uh, economists should be there aware of the social responsibility they have in society. And it is, of course, if I might add that, an, a reminder for historians of economics that ideas are always developed in a certain 
context in a certain place and time and if you really want to understand it as you did with the GDI economists you, you have to to understand also the tensions they were working in otherwise you might easily um, misunderstand them or misrepresent them. Yeah sure I would um, um, add perhaps before you um, uh, continue doing um, let's say like um, uh, bashing the one school on the basis of the ideas of the other school um, um, go into history and um, uh, look what made the people think that way. This is a thing very important because this is often not done if you look at the debates from, I don't know, if or the, the rather sometimes very superficial attacks on on neoliberalism and on socialism. You always think, well, you, you didn't even get the trouble to understand what the people want, so you, your criticism is always or seems always very I don't know, missing the target, I think. So it's it's really important to what you, what you just said to to try to understand first where the others were coming from or where ideas were coming from, and the tensions people faced and and the context they were in. Yeah, thanks for your understanding. One one very last question, and this might be a bit unfair question after we talked about your your um, the methodology and the. And your general approach, but is there any lasting influence of the GDR economists? That they, did they leave any lasting influence on economics today, or are there any texts that might still be read today in in Germany? I know, as I said, it might be a bit unfair question, but um, are there any traces left? Can that can still be seen today? Well, okay, the, um, uh, my arguments mostly established um, uh, the um, uh, closure of GDR economics or argued um, uh, in, in that respect. So uh, my answer should be no. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I also should not be like um, uh, uh, obliged to show the, 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 the opposite. Or I should not um, uh, uh, yeah, follow this temptation of trying to argue that it's the opposite. And it's also not a problem that it's the opposite. No? These are simply like different uh, regimes of knowledge and um, uh, yeah why 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 should there be uh, they are they are not less important because they are um, uh, not present anymore today in fact from a historical point of view they're even more interesting because they are absent today even though it's only 30 years ago uh, what else well but of course from uh, uh, I could give you a couple of books now that are still interesting to read um, um, if you're interested in whatever, in institutional economics, in the problems of um, a socialist society um, um, and so on. That was not like really my question, but if you are into uh, into the history of socialist thoughts and ideas and theories, of course, um, um, uh, they, they, their answers are still interesting for you today. But, well, that was not me. Thank you very much, Till, for this very interesting interview and for being a guest on Cetros Never Paribus. Yeah, thanks so much, Reinhard. That was fun. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.